Gage. And I'm Ray, and you are listening to Goverboard, a true crime podcast. Yay! Yes, hello and welcome. Welcome, welcome. Why immediately switch to goblin energy? Just sounding like an innkeeper, just welcome. <laughs> we are goblins after all. It's not that <laughs> unusual for us. Well, everybody out there, we wish that you're having a good day, a good week. And, and a, a good, good life. life. Definitely always wishing you that happy, safe, abundant, positive, loving existence. Oh, we're doing this again? <laughs> every time. Every time there will always be some steps right there in front of me. <laughs> and I'm always going to just eat shit and fall down them. <laughs> Yeet. <laughs> no matter what I do, I can't not be awkward. It's our condition. we hope that you guys had a wonderful valentine's day did you spend time with your boo oh i see what you did there Uh uh i love it i love it little pun there anyway (laughs) (laughs) that was perfect honestly that was perfect (laughs) so if you're new here again hi hello we welcome you into all of our weird we hope that if you like what you hear, that you would leave us either a quick little review or rating, depending on where you're listening to us at. It really helps support the show, and we appreciate it very, very much. Before we dive into this, trigger warning, there is mentions of suicide in here. Other than that, it is just pure mayhem. <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, goodness, mayhem. But, but elderly mayhem. Elderly man, <laughs> what? <laughs> That's so specific. So this is going to be a part one of two. Oh, a two-parter. A two-parter. And guys, we talked about it. We're not going to make you wait an entire week to hear the episode. No, we are going to be releasing on Sunday. Yes, so you're going to get part one today. Part two on Sunday, and then the next Thursday, we will still have our scheduled upload. So you're basically getting two episodes in one week from us this time. Yes. Yay. Effort and work. (laughs) (laughs) We've kind of been like a half a month of just being sequestered and working on podcast stuff and just, Yes. yes, I feel like a monk. I need to get out of my cloister. (laughs) (laughs) what the fuck i love you same i also need to exit my cloister which by the way cloister is totally one of my favorite pokemon fyi but i'm just (laughs) i'm just gonna leave it at that if you know you know i didn't even know that was a pokemon if you know you know any other trainers out there tuning in you know so today i'm gonna introduce you to a woman named dorothea puente oh shit she was the California, uh, I guess you could call her a landlady that killed her tenants. And it's a lot. It is a lot. Oh, Dorothea. Like I said, it's going to be two parts because we have a lot to discuss. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, I'm ready. So sit back, grab your snacks, 
and something for your nerves. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dive right in. Yay, murderous Mima! She was born Dorothea Helen Gray on January 9th, 1929, in Redlands, California. You share a birthday with Dorothea Puente. I do. That's crazy. I do. That's fucking wild. <laughs> so her family was rather large, and she was the sixth out of seven children. Their family was pretty poor, which resulted in her mother, Trudy, relying on sex work. So she was always bringing strange men home all the time. She would abandon the kids a lot and go out on these trips with her clients, leaving the kids with her husband, Jesse. And there were other times she would lock Dorothea and her younger brother in the closet with some food for several hours at a time. What in the fuck? That is... So sad. Her reasoning was because they were on the younger side, they couldn't really fend for themselves. So I guess in her mind, it was okay to just lock the kids up and, you know, uh, leave food with them. But I'm not rationalizing this. I'm not rationalizing this There's, at all. There is, like, no way to rationalize it. That's what I'm saying. Like, given... Like, I'm just trying to think, like... Well, you know, obviously, I'm not a parent. You are. So I can't really speak on what I think would be or would not be best. But in my mind, <laughs> I would think the better solution would be not to lock your kids in the closet for long periods of time with food. <laughs> right. My voice just hella cracked. But, you know, that's, that's my point. That's just, it's sad. It's really sad. But you might be asking, where is Jesse? Like, why did the kids get locked in the closet? Why couldn't Jesse watch them? Oh, yeah, you did bring up Jesse. Okay. Well, where are you at, Jesse? Well, Jesse picked cotton for a living, so his schedule was always busy. He was hardly ever home himself. But even with his income... The kids still had to fend for themselves, not only because the parents weren't home, but they also had to find their own food most of the time. Or take whatever they would be left with. Right. That's sad. Yeah. My famous word here on this show, that is, that's really sad. And that that's not her fault. That's yeah. not Dorothea's fault, you know, not this part of the story anyways. Both Trudy and Jesse were also alcoholics, and there was also substance abuse as well. Oh, God. They were both abusive toward their children. And Jesse would even hold a gun to his head and threaten to end his life in front of his kids. What a piece of shit. Yeah, that's that's pretty intense. Subsequently, he did try to kill himself, but he survived, only to then die from tuberculosis in 1937. Son of a bitch. Yeah. So following his death, the Gray children were left with Trudy. She lost custody of them in 1938 and then died in a motorcycle accident later that same year. Holy shit. So life just popped up and said, hi, where's the lube? You know? <laughs> no kidding. Jesus. Jesus. 
Dorothea and her six siblings were now orphaned, and they ended up being bounced around among family members and foster homes. Dorothea eventually ended up in an orphanage where she was sexually abused until relatives from Fresno, California took her in. Oh my god. She struck out on her own at age 16, and she ended up in Olympia, Washington, where she tried to make a living as a prostitute. Now, I will add a side note here. She lied a lot. She was a pathological liar and has a habit of exaggerating various aspects of her life. Mm -hmm. For instance, she would say that she had 18 siblings, that she was born and raised in Mexico, that she was related to Rita Hayworth, who was an actress, and that her sister was the ambassador of Sweden. So she's lying just about crazy shit. Oh, here's one. Uh, She actually said that she lived through the Hiroshima bombings. <laughs> what? Yeah. This is such random crazy things to lie about. So... Like, wow. You know, it's believed that she told these lies to embellish her life, I guess, to seem more interesting. Yeah. I, I guess I could see that. When you go through that type of trauma and abuse in your childhood, like, that really does fuck you up as a person. Well, yeah, of course it does. So it's like she tried escaping her reality and having to deal with her reality by fabricating a life that she didn't have, basically. Yeah. Which that's, you know, it's sad in its own right. Like, it's understandable. doesn't make it right, but you, I understand it. The point right. is I understand it. So, it's 1945, she's in Olympia, she's 16, and leaning on sex work to make a living. She would call herself Sherry and told people that she was 30 years old. At 16? Yes. Wow. Okay, Dorothea. She met a 22-year-old soldier named Fred McFall who had just returned from the Pacific Theater. So, Dorothea, being six years younger than him in actuality... She was groomed into her first relationship. He was attracted to her because she was very young. She was a sex worker who was willing to do whatever to be independent and get what she wants. Hate that, thanks. Yeah, so he's a pig. I think that Fred McFall knew that she was 16. I think that there was something in their relationship where she was probably honest with him at one point in time. Wow, okay. So that makes it even more fucked up if he knew and was still like, you know, hey. <laughs> yeah. But all right, all right. Dorothea had two daughters with Fred between 1946 and 1948. They didn't keep either of them. She sent one daughter to live with relatives in Sacramento, California, and the other was sent off for adoption. She became pregnant again in 1948, but she suffered a miscarriage this time. And later that year, Fred left her. Wow, that's a lot. But just like the version of herself she created with lies, she had a cover story for this as well, claiming that her husband died of a heart attack within days of their marriage. So that's what she went around telling people instead of the truth, which is he left her. Right. And I'm pretty sure she told this lie to save herself from embarrassment, but notice how these lies are structured in a way to either garner sympathy or validation. Definitely. I was going to say it sounds like 
she's doing this as a form of self-validation or trying to gain that validation in herself, you know? Yeah, it could also be her own coping mechanism for dealing with things. So that way it makes it easier on herself. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, oh, this didn't happen this way. This is how it happened. And just keep saying it until you convince yourself that that's what happened. Fake it till you make it, basically. Yeah. Gotcha. I mean, it is a coping mechanism, so. Right, right. Now, with Fred gone, she turned to alcohol just like her parents had. She was still doing sex work, but it just wasn't lucrative for her. She wanted more, so she turned to petty crime. She would forge fake checks and steal things from shops. One day, when Dorothea was 19, she was forging a fake check to pay for things from the shop, and the store clerk was beginning to be suspicious of her. So the clerk secretly contacted police, so naturally she was trying to stall Dorothea to keep her there until the police arrived. Gotcha. So then Dorothea began to get suspicious of the store clerk. (laughs) (laughs) All I see is Dorothea dressed as Spider-Man, the store clerk dressed as Spider-Man. They're pointing at each other saying, I'm suspicious of you. (laughs) That's all I'm seeing. Well, she goes running out of the store to jump on the first bus she saw. But little did she know, the police had already arrived and saw her board the bus. So then she was apprehended when the bus stopped and she was sentenced to one year in prison for the fraudulent check. Gotcha, gotcha. But that is such a funny scenario to think of. It's, like, <laughs> it's just all this suspicion being thrown around. Like, I'm suspicious of you. Oh, well, really? I'm suspicious of you. So right. what are we going to do about that? <laughs> and then this third guy from the back pops in. Oh, well, I'm suspicious of both of you. Right. It's just so much suspicion. <laughs> So, she had to undergo psychiatric evaluation, and it was concluded that Dorothea had low self-esteem from her childhood trauma. And she would steal things to look nice because she felt better about herself when she was dressed in nice things and having nice possessions. Oh, that's sad. It was also concluded that Dorothea would be a repeat offender if she wasn't given some sort of rehabilitation or counseling to help her. Unfortunately... Rehabilitation was never carried out, and she only served four months of her one-year sentence. Damn. After Dorothea was released, she was put on probation for a year, and not long into that, she ran away despite the violation of her probation. So, no one knew where she went. Her probation officer actually declared her as missing. Holy shit. So, the minute she was able to, she just got up and went. Right. Damn. Exactly. So they put out warrants for arrest and they were actively searching for her. With the searches coming up empty-handed, they eventually stopped looking for her. Dorothea, however, ended up in San Francisco. And there, she continued sex work to support herself. It's rumored that at this time she was impregnated by a man she barely knew gave birth to a daughter, and put her up for adoption as well. And she's so young. Like, I keep reminding myself at this point of the story how young she is. Right. And my God, she's been through so much. In 1952, she started calling herself Taya Singuala Nayarta, 
and ended up marrying a merchant seaman named Alex Johansson in San Francisco. The lies and exaggerations continued. So her husband really only knew what she was telling him. She was claiming to be a Muslim of Egyptian and Israeli descent. She also lied about what she did for work, although it is unclear what she said she was doing for work at the time. But we can probably assume that she wasn't telling the truth. Right. Gotcha, gotcha. Alex would be away from her for long periods of time while he was on his fishing excursions, so the sex work more than likely was continued even though she was married. And he never even realized what it was she was doing for work, but he started getting suspicious. Back at it again with all this suspicion. Right. She didn't want to tell him that she was a sex worker, so she ended up changing jobs. So she decided that she was going to run a brothel instead. Wow. So she was the madam at the brothel, and it's unclear whether she was still taking clients for herself But either way, she was still involved with sex work. She told the landlord that she was just renting the rooms out and wanted to turn the place into some sort of bookkeeping firm. But after a while, the landlord became suspicious. (laughs) I knew it. I knew it was coming. (laughs) I was about to say, everybody's getting suspicious. And he called the police. (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't know why that sent me so bad. I'm so sorry. (laughs) This whole everybody dressed up as Spider-Man casting suspicion in this direction, casting suspicion in that direction, met with reverse suspicion. (laughs) It's just sending me. I'm so sorry. (laughs) So the police went undercover to the establishment as clients to try and catch them in the act, and they did catch her. In 1960, she was arrested for owning and managing a brothel and she was sentenced to 90 days in the Sacramento County Jail. Around this time Alex and Dorothea began arguing all the time and it was becoming rather violent and turbulent. Subsequently in 1961 Alex had Dorothea committed to DeWitt State Hospital after a binge of drinking, lying, criminal behavior, and suicide attempts. Like she is just going through it and he was like nope bitch you (laughs) no I'm crying see what we're not gonna do is this whatever this this is we ain't gonna do it he had her committed he said I'm not dealing with it I'm committing you so while there doctors diagnosed her as a pathological liar with an unstable personality that requires her to take antipsychotic medication going forward Shit. Right. So, at the end of their 14-year relationship, Dorothea and Alex got divorced in 1966. She would continue to use Johansson's name for some time following their separation, and this time she assumed the identity of Sharon Johansson, hiding her delinquent behavior by portraying herself as a kind Christian woman. In the same year, Dorothea married Roberto Puente, and he is 19 years younger than her in Mexico City. That's where they got married. Gotcha, gotcha. So, I mean, you know, just out here living your life. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, she wanted to make an honest living, so she decided to leave the sex work industry for good. 
She then became a nurse's aide, taking care of people in their private homes. She wasn't a nurse because she didn't have the qualifications to be one, but that didn't stop her from continuing to do it. She'd work with the elderly, disabled, and others. Her marriage to Roberto only lasted two years, and there's a lot of sources that say Roberto left Dorothea. But another source claims that after 16 months, they separated. Like unanimously separated. They separated with Dorothea citing domestic abuse as the main cause. Gotcha, gotcha. She attempted to serve him with a divorce, but he fled to Mexico. And the divorce wouldn't be finalized until 1973. The two continued to have a turbulent relationship and she filed a restraining order against him in 1975. Some even claim that the only reason Roberto married Dorothea was to obtain a green card, but that's speculation. However, she would continue to use the last name Puente for more than 20 years. Damn. So, you know, was it... Was it that she was still madly in love with him and wanted to keep the name? Or was it because she needed a new identity to roll off of? Well, considering that we're talking about it on our true crime podcast, it would probably be safe to assume that it wasn't out of love and probably out of needing a new identity. Right. Just you know. Remember, <laughs> we are talking about this again on a true crime podcast. So that kind of <laughs> it kind of implies something, you know? So, she was left with her job as a nurse's aide and got to the point where she wanted to build her own career. Just like the sex work, she knew that she could probably make more money if she was managing other people. Mm-hmm. So, she figured she'd find a home for herself to focus on running a boarding house. Not a bordello, a boarding house this time. What is a bordello? So a bordello is a brothel, basically. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, I I didn't know the term, so I had to ask. Yeah, it's it's where the red light special goes on. Red lights. Okay, never mind. So, <laughs> following her divorce, Puente would focus on running a boarding house located at 21st and F Street in Sacramento. In the large 16-bedroom home, she took the top floor for herself... And she used the main floor and sublevel for rooms for her tenants. She actually had a room that was set up as an office with fake diplomas hanging up on the wall. How did she get those? I don't know how she got those, but she was pretending like she had qualifications. Yeah, so like, I guess my point of even asking that is like, she really went to the extreme. Yeah. With this, you know, really fabricating her life and her experiences. Like, she's really going to the extremes of this. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Not to mention the fact she's probably sitting there thinking, I need money and I need it now. I'm not going to actually go to school for these things because that's too much work. You know? So she tried to get the easy way out, which would be, I'm just going to fake my diplomas, my qualifications my experience and i'm just gonna go do the damn thing i mean trying to wing it she's out here raw dog in life apparently like it's just (laughs) but you know she had to have a professional come once a month to check up on the well-being of the facility and the patients 
So appearances of this home would make Dorothea look good. She also had drawers and cabinets of medical supplies that she couldn't really use, but she had it in her possession anyway. And again... It adds to the whole look she's trying to go for. It's that appearance factor. Each tenant had their own room with their own bathroom. They had a single bed and a TV. The ground floor was only available to higher income tenants, people who were willing to pay more. But the lower income tenants were in the basement. Now, the lower income tenants did not have their own bedroom. It was one large basement with single beds lined up and curtains to separate them, like a hospital ward. So in order to live there, tenants had to sign over their social security checks to Dorothea. The reasoning for this was the tenant's upkeep, so things like rent and food, and she would also help these people manage what was left of their checks as well. Because you have to keep in mind, the majority of the people that she took in, like the lower income tenants, is what the city would call your quote-unquote shadow people. Mm -hmm. Because they were seen as like the dregs of society, so criminals, drug addicts, alcoholics, and the like. Gotcha, gotcha. People that normally regular shelters wouldn't take in. Gotcha, gotcha. Things seemed to be going really well. She was still having issues with her alcohol dependency, but she was thriving in her new business. As she was earning more and more money in the home, she began to get more and more social outside the home. She established herself as a genuine resource to the community to aid alcoholics, drug addicts, homeless people, and some mentally ill people by holding Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and assisting her new tenants to sign up to receive social security benefits. And she would also dispense medication to her tenants as well. So someone that needed someone to stay on top of like what meds you're taking, when you're taking them. How much of it you need. Right. So in a really big way, or in really more than one big way, she really had complete control over these people. Yeah. Like genuinely, she was at the pinnacle of everything. Right. For these people. She's their housing. She's taking over their money. I mean, of course, she's saying that she's managing it, but given how this story goes, we know that's not the case. Right. But she has financial control, uh, the control over their medications. Like, she really brings these people in and then just has full power over them. Right. I mean, it's chilling. Right. But, like, with Dorothea managing all their money, it got to the point where these people had no idea where their money was being allocated She would just take a huge chunk out of their checks every month and not tell them how much she was actually spending on their upkeep. Wow. Yeah. And she would never take in any patients that needed round-the-clock care either because she didn't have actual qualifications and knew she'd get herself into a situation that she couldn't get out of. Right. Like, if she took in someone that needed care that was far beyond what she could give like she knew not to do that right however here's a even bigger damn she was also seen in bars every night she'd regularly buy rounds of drinks for everyone and throw events where she paid for literally everything 
Or should we say her tenants paid for everything? Right. So in 1974, things were running smoothly for her for several years. So she decided to hire a groundskeeper, a very handsome young man named Pedro Montalvo. She was very quickly smitten with him and even offered him a room in the home as part of his payment. It was believed that her intention for offering him a room was so she could spend more time with him. Okay, Dorothea, shoot your shot, girl. Like, I just hear the saxophone in the background. The... <laughs> right? That totally <laughs> wasn't... <laughs> okay. I was gonna say, we totally in no way in any capacity just made saxophone noises. We made everything but. Right. We made... We made other noises. To you listening, the intention was definitely a saxophone. Just remember that going forward. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. So as time went on, they were spending more and more time together. And Dorothea started taking him out with her to socialize and have a good time out. Which, more often than not, ended in her bedroom. Like, just getting it. Just get it, Dorothea. Just get it. <laughs> Over time... The two of them developed feelings, but this relationship was also built on lies. She told Pedro that she too was born and raised in Mexico, that she was a professional doctor and had all these qualifications from where she had studied in Mexico, and Dorothea and Pedro got married in 1976, making him her fourth husband by the age of 45. Wow. Wilding. <laughs> She's living life. <laughs> Just like her last relationship, Pedro was a lot younger than she was. And just like her other marriages, this one also fell apart rather quickly. Pedro began to see the dark side of Dorothea's business. He suspected her of stealing from her tenants, which she was. There's no denying that. Not only was she stealing money from their checks, but she was also stealing physical possessions. Oh, shit. She was attending bars without Pedro and was having very flirtatious relationships with these regulars at the bar so they would buy her things and give her money. The more Pedro saw things going on there at home, the more he would see that he was very naive and he didn't want to be in this relationship anymore. Instead of him bringing any of this up to her, he decided to just run away after a month of marriage. Only a month? A month. Damn. But it's not like they really had this dating period either. It was so like flash in the pan kind of very fast. Very fast. Very intense and very short-lived. Right. Well, you know what they say, like, the brightest flame burns fastest. Yeah. 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 Things were going well for Dorothea, and all the money she was receiving by cashing in her tenant's social security check, she was using a lot of that money to give back to her community. So she would actually help some low-income families feed and supply their kids with school supplies. Oh, okay. So one of her tenants was out and about and was arrested for what I'm not sure of. But 
This led police to start looking into Dorothea's boarding house because the tenant that was arrested was sitting in jail. His social security check was cashed. While he was in jail. Uh-huh. Gotcha. So that led the question of, well, who cashed it? And, you know, they were confused on how that happened, obviously. So as they looked into it, they found it was Dorothea signing the checks. And the further they looked into it, all the checks that arrived at the boarding house were all being signed by Dorothea. She had done this to 40 other people as well, totaling over $4,000. Damn, that is a chunk of change. And when you think of the time that this happened... That's a chunk of change. It's, it's even you know more valuable because back then our money was more valuable. Yeah. So Dorothea was arrested and given five years probation, so no jail this time. But under the stipulation that she give up the boarding house and she could no longer work as a nurse's aide. Gotcha. So they were basically like, yep, you're never going to own another boarding house and you can't work as a nurse's aide. She once again had to undergo psychiatric evaluation where she was diagnosed with unspecified schizophrenia. During this five-year probation, she was allowed to move around California, so she moved a lot. And she would find herself getting different jobs here and there, but none of them ever stuck. So she was missing her boarding home. She hashed a plan and worked her way back to that. Son of a bitch, Dorothea. She ended up getting back to Sacramento and decided she was going to be a caregiver for families. But since she was returning to a city where she was a known criminal, she decided to change up the way she looked. So she changed her public image to that of a respectable older matron by putting on clothing that would make her appear older, wearing large granny glasses, and letting her hair turn gray. She would lie about her age to an older age than what she was. And she was trying to look the part of the sweet little old lady, and it worked. Ugh, it's chilling. Could you imagine trying to trick people so you just change, completely change the way you look? I mean, it's a tactic. I could, I don't think I could ever do that. No, I couldn't either. I wouldn't even know where to begin. I'm way too lazy to be a criminal. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> So I'm not running from anybody. I have no reason to get disguised. Right. And if we did, we wouldn't announce it on this podcast. <laughs> she found a family on F Street in Sacramento. The exact street where she once had the boarding house. Ricardo Orderica and his family were looking for a Spanish-speaking nanny. And since Dorothea seemed to fit the part, she was hired. Part of her payment from the family was to be housed in the entire second floor of the home. And her job was basically to be a nanny, a healthcare worker, and really just someone to be there at the house. She eventually became a very close family friend to the Ordericas and was even asked to be a godmother to one of the children. Oh, wow. So, since she was not an around-the-clock nanny, she eventually wanted to set herself up with some side work. Lucky for her... She found a company that didn't ask for a criminal background. So she once again ended up doing nurse's aid work. 
So instead of her being in one place and everyone living in the same spot, she was moving around and going out to patients' houses. So things were going pretty well for Dorothy at this point, right up until they started suspecting her of stealing from them. Oh, here comes the suspicion again. (laughs) Dorothea was very good at manipulating and gaslighting. So she was taking advantage of these vulnerable people, stealing from them, and then using manipulation to get them to believe anything she said. So once she realized she could get away with this, she decided to hit another level, so to speak, to amp up what she was getting out of it. Oh, no. Dorothea went to see this one patient named Esther. And Esther had a really bad heart problem. Things were starting to turn around to where Esther didn't require that much care anymore. Esther was getting better from her heart condition. Then out of nowhere, it got really bad again and Esther was rushed to the hospital. The doctors were very confused until a social worker pointed out that only after Dorothea's visits, Esther began to feel unwell. Oh. Suspicions arise. Suspicious. And they decided to schedule a visit while Dorothea was there with Esther. So they could check the dynamic. Um, They were trying to get a better picture of what was going on in the home. Upon visiting... Dorothea came across as very forthcoming and cooperative of all these questions being asked. She even reassured them that Esther was getting all the care she needed. Esther herself even told social workers that she was glad Dorothea was there for her. She loved having her around and felt like she couldn't look after herself at this point in her life. Wow. So she was completely dependent on Dorothea. And she loved Dorothea. After that doctor's visit, Esther stopped coming to the hospital. It was like her heart condition was cured, but of course, the doctors knew that wasn't the case. Right. In fact, the doctors actually got a call from other doctors at another hospital saying Esther had been seen there with these heart conditions and they just wanted to communicate with the old doctors to get past history and stuff. What? Yeah, the fact that Dorothea had taken Esther to another hospital just to avoid that doctor's suspicion pretty much confirmed that something else was going on. Holy. Yeah. So the first doctor advised the second doctor to check out Esther's toxicology report. There were high levels of various different drugs in her system, all of which were not prescribed to her. But can you guess who the drugs were prescribed to? Dorothea! Remember, Esther is wealthy, and Dorothea didn't like the idea of not being around her because she was stealing from her. And in order for Dorothea to stick around, Esther needed to be unwell. Right. So she resorted to drugging Esther to keep her just sick enough so she would have to have someone come and check on her every week. Son of a bitch. And when it all came out, Esther and her family tried taking it to the police. However, nothing actually came of it due to a lack of evidence. There was no proof that Dorothea was the one giving Esther the drugs. 
So Dorothea continued to go to people's homes as a caregiver, and she wasn't even given so much as a warning. That is insane to me. They did nothing. And my brain cannot comprehend that. She pretty much had the ability to go freely and do do this shit. Right. Like Which she is could wild. Just freely move around and do this and not get caught for quite some time. I mean, she did get caught in the beginning, remember? But at so, this point in time, she hadn't. Right. And that's the problem. That's the scary part. <laughs> in 1982, she was 53 years old and went out like she usually did to the bar. This is what she usually did to socialize when she wasn't running her boarding house. Here, she met 74-year-old Malcolm McKenzie. And after a night of drinks and flirting, he suggested Dorothea go to his house. So they pull up to his house, and as they're going to get out of the cab, he noticed that he was way more intoxicated than he thought he was. Oh, shit. Getting up to the house from the cab, he was stumbling and staggering. And Dorothea actually carried him into his home. Holy shit. He went from being completely fine at the club to totally not being okay at his house. He stated that he couldn't understand how his mind was completely sober, but his body was drunk. Oh my god. So she walked him into his house and laid him down on the couch. He watched as she got up and began to rummage through his house for valuable things. She drugged him to steal his possessions. And he just literally wasn't able to move, but he was able to sit there and just watch. Yeah. Oh my god. So reports say that she had this big red suitcase and she was just grabbing valuable items and was just shoving things into the suitcase to walk out with. And before she left the house, she actually walked up to him, picked up his hand, sliding the ring off his pinky. What the fuck, Dorothea? Right. Just, you're sitting here watching me ransack your place. Oh, by the way, nice ring, you know? Oh my god. It's wild. After a while, he regained control of his body and called the police. He knew exactly who she was and what she did. And two days later, Dorothea was arrested and a court date was set. In three months' time, all she had to do was behave herself. This is a side note. It's also said that around that time... Dorothea was also passing herself off as a medical practitioner for older women. She would carry around one of those old doctor bags with a stethoscope, a blood pressure cuff, and other things that were used as props. Oh my god, that's so scary. Like, you know the leather bag that the doctors would carry around? Yes. She actually had one of those. The imagery is too much. So you have this woman, she looks like this little sweet old lady carrying around a fucking doctor's bag. I'm good. Same. I am good. I'm more than good on that. I don't need personal care. I need to die. (laughs) I need to just die because if this is my options... You said, let me go. (laughs) 
once she would visit, her patient would then be drugged and robbed of jewelry, checks, money, and anything else that was valuable that she could get away with. All the victims of Dorothea's drug and rob game reported the same symptoms before ultimately passing out. Holy shit. When arrested for these crimes, she pled guilty to five felony charges, including grand theft, forgery, and administering stupefying drugs on July 21st, 1982. She then spent five years in the state prison. After she got out of prison, she realized she couldn't make money from the drug and steel game anymore. So Dorothea had an idea to enlist the help of a friend, who was 61-year-old Ruth Monroe. Okay. She always had this sweet personality as a mask. Ruth and her kids loved Dorothea. Right from the start, they thought that she was just the sweetest lady, and the more they were around Dorothea, that's when she started saying, Call me Grandma. Oh, this is making my stomach hurt. Ruth's husband, Harold, was terminally ill with cancer, and she often worried what her life would look like once he passed away. Dorothea saw this as a mutual opportunity. Ruth needed a friend, and Dorothea needed money. Dorothea suggested they set up a catering company. Dorothea didn't have much money at the time, so Ruth funded the entirety of the company. Dorothea had manipulated Ruth into seeing what a fun hobby and career this would be. It was then agreed that all initial funding had to come from Ruth starting out, and Dorothea would pay her back once she made it. They opened a joint bank account for the catering business, and Ruth deposited $2,000. Dorothea claimed that the business wasn't doing so well, and more money had to be put into it. So Ruth continued to put money into it, believing that things would line out and eventually Dorothea would pay her what she owed. There was never any fights over money either. This is so sad. They were friends, or at least that's what Ruth thought that they were. Uh... In April of 1982, Ruth's husband became extremely ill. He was nearing the end of his life, and as Ruth was seeing her husband getting worse and worse, it was a huge impact on her. I could imagine. Goodness. I mean, she's watching the love of her life waste away to nothing and suffering the entire time. Dorothea had no patience for Ruth's suffering. And in Dorothea's eyes, this made Ruth useless in the business. So to try to fix Ruth's sadness and suffering, Dorothea invited Ruth to come and stay with her where she lived at the Orderica house. Hopefully this would help cheer her up. Ruth's children thought this was an amazing idea, and they even helped Ruth move in with Dorothea. Some time passed, and Ruth's health started to very sharply decline. Oh no. She seemed very spaced out, And one of Ruth's daughters got very concerned when she came to see her mother and found her asleep on the couch. It was out of character for her mom to be asleep during the day. She was never like the type of person to take a nap. So her daughter asked Dorothea 
what was going on with her mom. And Dorothea then explained to her that her mother's spaced out state was due to Ruth having had a nervous breakdown. What? She then continued on to explain that she had taken Ruth to the emergency room and the doctors there had given her a tranquilizer shot earlier that day. Jesus Christ, Dorothea. This did seem very likely because her daughter knew her mom was going through a lot. She even thanked Dorothea for being such a good friend to her mom. She, oh my God, Dorothea took so much advantage in such a vulnerable, vulnerable situation. Yeah. That is so fucked up. My goodness. A few days later, Dorothea contacted Ruth's children and told them that she wasn't doing so well physically. Wow. So in this documentary that I watched, Ruth's son, Bill, came to check on her every day. Gotcha. He stated that one time he visited and his mom was sitting on the couch with a drink in her hand. And he had stated that his mother was not a drinker or a smoker and that it was odd that she was drinking what Dorothea called creme de menthe. Ruth never touched alcohol. She was actually allergic to it. What? But she was drinking this drink because she told Bill it calmed her nerves. The business Ruth and Dorothea were running wasn't doing well at all. They were losing money and Ruth didn't have any more money to put into it. So, you know, she's stressed out over that. And you've got Dorothea over here like, oh, drink this. It'll calm your nerves. Holy shit. Right. And even though she's allergic to it, she's like, well, you know, I am going through a lot. Let me just. And, you know, know, also she has that faith in her friend. Right. That, you know, that's not even a thought in her brain that, oh, my best friend, my business partner is going to give me something that's going to hurt me. Like, that's not even a pathway in her brain. Right. So, my God, again, this is, this is so fucked up. Oh, well, it's me, Squidward. And I'm just here to say that Dorothea doesn't sound like too good of a fucking friend, does she? Not at all. Not at all. I agree with you, Squidward. (laughs) I agree with you, Squidward. Yes. (laughs) Upon another visit after work, Bill comes in to find Dorothea sitting at the table. He asked where his mom was, and she said that Ruth was sleeping because she didn't feel well. And when Bill said that he was going to go up and go see her, Dorothea told him, oh, you know, don't bother her. She's sleeping. You know, she doesn't feel well. And he was like... I am not leaving until I see my mom. Right, right. I mean, can you blame him? Same. My God. Like, I'm not just going to show up to come see my mom and not see my mom. Especially when all this weird shit has been going on lately. Like, she's spaced out. She's not here. She's doing things that she's never done before, like napping and drinking, uh, what did you call it? Creme Creme de de menthe. We just shared a brain cell. We did. But yeah, like, all that considered, like, that would just be the end of that. Ruth was curled up in a tight ball on her bed, in the fetal position, covered with a blanket. Her eyes were open, but she didn't move or talk even. He saw that she had tears rolling down her face, and he was sitting on the side of the bed, and kind of like, you know, 
how a kid sits on the side of the bed and kind of rubs you a little bit. Yeah. Right? And he was sitting there doing that and told her that everything would be okay. Dorothea would take care of her. Dorothea talked about being a nurse at one time, so he felt that his mother was in capable hands. So he left and went home. Oh, my God. My stomach just dropped through my asshole. (laughs) Yes, exactly that. In the early hours of the next morning, around 6 a.m., Dorothea called all of Ruth's children and told them to come over as quickly as they could. Ruth had passed away. Oh, my God. When the coroner comes to the house and speaks to Dorothea, she said she believed Ruth took too much of her meds and thinks that's what killed her. Ruth's kids argued the fact that this was very uncharacteristic of how their mother was. Yeah, I was about to say, an overdose? That's really convenient, Dorothea. Right. They knew their mother, obviously, and knew for a fact she wouldn't have taken her own life. Like, they knew this for a fact. This is so sad. Bill said that Dorothea called his sister saying, Come and get your mom's stuff. And all that was left was an empty purse. What? Ruth had money and jewelry, but it was all gone. Dorothea said that Ruth had given her everything, and she didn't pack anything in this empty purse. So this is literally what they had left of Ruth, an empty fucking purse. Oh my god, I cannot imagine. I truly cannot imagine. Like... Everything is all great. Your mom's moved in. She's going to be taken care of. And now she's dead. And all you have left of her is a purse. I literally cannot imagine this. Due to the gravity of the event, the coroner insisted on an autopsy. Dorothea had called the coroner and told him that her roommate committed suicide. What? She actually called the coroner. Just to volunteer that yes wow so wow bitch wow right wow bitch (laughs) (laughs) so the autopsy was performed on april 28th 1982 and the toxicology confirmed that ruth had lethally high levels of acetaminophen meprobamate Uh, which is used to treat anxiety disorders or for short-term relief for the symptoms of anxiety, and it's classified as a tranquilizer. Oh, shit. They also found codeine in her system as well. However, these drugs were not prescribed to Ruth, and with all the confusion, there was no way to tell if it was an accidental overdose, a suicidal overdose, or poisoning. Ruth's children weren't happy at all with the decision. At all. But there was still one question that made no sense. Where had she gotten the medication from? Dorothy. (laughs) (laughs) Ruth's son-in-law voices concerns about Dorothea, stating the fact that she was perfectly healthy before she lived there. Then all of a sudden, she was gone. He wanted to do his own investigation, so he began looking through Ruth's medical records and everything he could possibly get his hands on, finding that Ruth had never been seen by a professional for any nervous breakdown. 
There was no documentation that she had ever received a tranquilizer as treatment, and Dorothea had been caught in a lie. He then went to the police and said, Look, my mother-in-law Ruth has passed in a very suspicious way, and her best friend she was living with is lying about what happened leading up to her death. So the police agreed that it was indeed suspicious, but there was nothing they could do because the evidence was purely circumstantial. Because back then there wasn't a way to test for these types of things. Right, right. Whereas now, they can test you and tell what you've had in your system nine months ago. You know, they just didn't have that type of technology back then. There was absolutely nothing to prove Dorothea gave Ruth those drugs. This all happened in the three months leading up to the Malcolm McKenzie court date. Wow. Well, she definitely didn't behave. Not at all. Dorothea did not, not at all. behave. Like, she kept saying that, you know, she wanted to turn her life around and stuff like that, but she did not, like, just refused to. Did not. So, between the time of the McKenzie crime and the three months leading up to the court date, Police did a lot of investigating to see if anyone else had interactions like this with Dorothea, and at least three people came forward to say Dorothea Puente had drugged and robbed them. However, none of these three people were actually willing or physically able to testify against Dorothea, and the only witness statement that was used in the court date was Malcolm McKenzie's, so it's basically his word against hers. Gotcha, gotcha. Dorothea knew it wasn't looking good, so she had to do something because she just knew she was going back to prison. She went and took all the money out of that joint account for the catering company, which equaled $2,000. Again. So she emptied it all out, and she used that money to buy a plane ticket to go to Mexico. Wow. After purchasing the ticket... She took a trip to her friend's house. Her name was Dorothy Osborne. And to prevent any confusion, I'll just call her Osborne. Gotcha. So when Osborne opened the door to find Dorothea standing there with her arms full of bottles of alcohol, Dorothea said, I know it's really early, but I'm really stressed and just want a drink. Osborne was very good friends with Dorothea, so of course she agreed. And Dorothea went straight to the kitchen and began making cocktails. Oh, no. Osborne remembers taking a sip of this cocktail, and it was the strongest drink she'd ever drank in her life. (laughs) I bet. After drinking it, it was so strong she had to drink something else entirely behind it just to wash the taste down. Sounds like a drink that you've given me at one point in time. Listen, we ain't going to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) So the next thing she recalls was waking up on the sofa 12 hours later, only to find Dorothea was gone. Oh my God, 12 hours? That is that type of sleep that I want. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. So Osborne gets up confused and discombobulated. And she picks up the glasses from off the table to take them to the kitchen and noticed a white powder on the counter in the kitchen. Oh, shit. It wasn't hers, so it had to be Dorothea's. And looking around the house, she noticed things were missing. Credit cards, debit cards, jewelry. 
things like that. Dorothea. And it's at this time she realized that she had been drugged and robbed by someone she called friend. She then calls the police, and the police visited the scene and collected the powder, the cocktail, and whatever evidence there was left find. They grabbed it all up. And they started searching for Puente, and three days later, they found her with a bunch of Osborne's belongings still in her bag. (laughs) Oh my god, Dorothea! It's bad. So she hadn't even tried to sell them or flee to Mexico like she was planning to do. She had the plane ticket, but hadn't taken the trip yet. And this was a hit. My god. A last chance heist before fleeing the country. And after this incident, the police put her in a holding cell, like when they caught up to her and they got her. She was forced to wait until eventually the court date came. For the McKenzie case. Yes, so she had to wait in this cell until the McKenzie case. Well, Dorothea, you shouldn't drug and rob people. So now... Not only was she being charged with the drugging and robbery of Malcolm McKenzie, but now her friend, Dorothy Osborne. Dorothea pled guilty to all the charges against her, and she was sentenced to five years in prison. Once news got out, Ruth's children saw this as confirmation that Dorothea was responsible for the death of their mother. They tried to reopen their case with the police. These two people... Osborne and Mackenzie, they had their lives. And Ruth's children were left with no mother and no answers. The case was somewhat reopened, but not in the way Ruth's children had wanted. It wasn't a matter of who killed their mother. It was a matter of whether their mother had truly overdosed herself. They couldn't tell if it was a suicide, homicide, or an accidental overdose. Dorothea had spoken to police and she told them that Ruth had committed suicide because she was depressed after the death of her husband. That is so fucked. The police actually bought Dorothea's story and Ruth's death would be officially ruled as a suicide, which is exactly the opposite of what Ruth's kids wanted. They knew that their mother hadn't killed herself. They knew in their hearts that far more sinister things were involved. Alright guys, that is the end of part one. Oh my goodness, the cliffhanger. (laughs) It will all be set right when you listen to the second episode. Like, it's just gonna be... It's a lot. So yeah, remember guys... We're going to be releasing part two this Sunday, so just four days from now. We're not going to make you wait a whole week to hear the conclusion of this story. So you're going to get that and the normal Thursday upload next week as well. So I know. I hate cliffhangers. I do too. I can't stand them. Especially extended cliffhangers, like where you really have to wait. I'm not with that shit. Right? So what did you think? Like so far in the story... Her life, everything leading up to where we are now. Like, this isn't even the most heinous shit that she did. Which is crazy. Like, I'm I'm definitely familiar with the Dorothea Puente case. Some of you more dedicated listeners may actually remember this one as an old gem of Ray's from way back when. But, uh, yeah, this case is fucking crazy. 
I'm really, really excited slash not excited to hear the rest of it and for us to get through the rest. Like, I I know what's coming to a degree. I know what's coming and I know it's not good. Yeah, so I think we're going to have to end tonight with a little bit of Animal Crossing, maybe some anime. I'm definitely okay with either or or both of those, honestly, in any combination. I'm totally down with that. So if any of you guys would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird, well, I have great news for you. You can definitely do that. You can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And Twitter. At Gore Report. And also remember, we have an email now. If you would like to send me and Ray an email, you can do so by sending it in to goreportpod at gmail.com. Yes! Yay! So, yeah, this case is honestly just really messed up and really awful. I now know that bordillo was another word for brothel. And oh, yeah, don't fucking drug and rob your friends, because <laughs> what in the fuck? That is all for tonight, guys. Bye. Bye. I am afraid. You said me. You bless me.